Hi, welcome to Unleash Ministries podcast, where Pastor Nathan Sanford will guide us through daily Bible studies, prophetic revelations, and life-changing encounters with the Father's love. Join us for near daily content as we dive into the Word of God. Everyone, so welcome to Hebrews chapter 9. And I have to say 9 because I'm in North Carolina. So, anyway, Hebrews chapter 9. So, <laughs> right now, if you've been listening to this, you're pretty much uh, kind of getting a broken record. I mean, not really. There's a ton of revelation by the writer of Hebrews here. <clears throat> but at the same time, he kind of is trying to reiterate the point over and over again. He's trying to <laughs> make the point of how awesome Jesus is, what his sacrifice actually accomplished. And he's going to get into faith and all this other stuff, but he's going to, and remember he's writing or right. Yeah. He's writing to a group of people who are in, um, who are Jewish people who are tempted to fall back into Jewish practices, specifically believing that those practices have something to do with their holiness or their salvation or the remission of sin. So, He's writing this to basically say, you cannot do that. Like, do not go back to that way of thinking. So um, let's just jump right into it because there's so many cool things in this passage. Let's just go for it. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Now, by first, he doesn't mean Abrahamic, of course. He's talking about the Mosaic. That's what he means by first covenant. And he's saying it had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary, meaning, of course, they had laws and rituals surrounding like how you're supposed to worship God and an earthly sanctuary, meaning you had a literal tabernacle, whether it was the tent or later on in Jerusalem when they built the tabernacle. That's what he's talking about. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and sacred bread. This is called the holy place. So just so you know, there was um, the whole, what we call the holy place was basically an area about like 45 feet long by 15 feet wide and about 15 feet high. And in that area, there was like, um, remember in the, in, in the tabernacle, there was, uh, it was called the outer tabernacle, um, but it was basically where you had the lamp stand, which was, you know, like a kind of like a candelabra, if you think of it like that, with like six candles on it. And then there was a table and sacred bread. And again, these are the tables um, where you would keep, uh, uh, you know, different things um, for the sacrifices, the table of the bread. Um, and he said, that's called the holy place. So you had that section. And then he says, verse three, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. So remember, so you had this room, 45 by 15 or so, and that's separated in two sections. And there's a larger section, which is the outer place, and then um, the, are called the outer one is what he calls it. And then there was a tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, which is the inner place. And that was smaller. That was like 15 by 15. And they called that the Holy of Holies. And that says it has having a golden altar of incense. This is, of course, where you burnt incense that went up to the Lord as prayer. And the Ark of the Covenant, which you've heard a lot about, right? This is the Ark of the Covenant that David rejoiced when it came back to Jerusalem. Remember, the top of it is called the Mercy Seat, where you have two cherubim like facing each other. And it says, um, basically, he describes it. He's like, an Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. It's literally like a box. The golden box, essentially. 
in which was a golden jar holding the manna. Now, of course, the manna is like the manna that came from heaven that's supposed to remind them um, both of God's provision and their like lack of faith. So <laughs> that's kind of what it's supposed to do. And also in the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's rod, which budded, which is supposed to remind them of their rebellion, which you guys remember the story. I'm not going to go into it now, but you can look it up in the Old Testament of how Aaron's rod and one in it budded and all of that. And the table's uh, of the covenant or the tablets, you know what I mean? The actual 10 commandment covenant, um, the tablets of the covenant, that's all in the Ark of the Covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory. That's what I just described. Like on the mercy seat or the, or the, basically the lid of it <laughs> is like two cherubims uh, looking at one another, overshadowing the mercy seat. Now remember on the mercy seat is where you would actually drip blood and what and basically what happens is it's kind of this real interesting thing where God looks into the ark of the covenant to see Israel's failure essentially is what that all represents like the cut like the tablets that they can't keep you know like the 10 commandments that they keep violating Aaron's rod which is their rebellion and then the manna which is how he provided it and they complain so he looks in there he sees that but then it's covered with the mercy seat so all God sees is the blood sacrifice on top of the mercy seat so it's like covered by blood or the sacrifice for that sin. So that that's basically, he's just painting a picture of what they already know, which of course us, the reader, like 2000 years later, are like, don't have any clue what he's talking about, but his reader would have been very, very familiar with this language. In verse five, and above it were the cherubim, which I read, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And he goes, but of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Like He's like, I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time talking about this because all his readers know what he's talking about. So I just gave you guys some details that you might not know or might not understand because you're not Jewish and you don't know all of this stuff. But it's very helpful to know as we get deeper into Hebrews because it's going to like... It's almost like Hebrews builds up to this like crazy, awesome explosion. And so you kind of have to have all the pieces in place for it to explode in your spirit like it's supposed to do, set you on fire, give you faith like you've never had, and give you an encounter with the living God like you've never had before. Like this is the point of Hebrews. So verse 6, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. So basically that bigger area that I described, remember there's two areas of the tabernacle. There's the big one that's like 45 by 15 or whatever. And then there's a, a veil that goes into a smaller place. And that one's called the Holy of Holies. So you have these two separate rooms. And what he's simply describing is that priests basically are always going to the outer tabernacle and basically performing worship and sacrifices. Um that you know that you're accustomed to so um essentially for uh basically for all the sins basically all the known sins and just so you guys know so all the known sins you kind of like sacrifice in that area and do divine worship there and then in the holy of holies the idea of dripping blood from hyssop and all of that onto the mercy seat is essentially for like sins done in ignorance so that's kind of the idea so you have this outer court in which all or the outer area of this room where most of the almost all the kind of divine worship and things like that went on. But then he says, but into the second, meaning that smaller area, only the high priest enters once a year. So remember, and that, that's called the Day of Atonement, where he sprinkles on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant um, the blood that would then cover the sins done in ignorance. And again, that's called the Day of Atonement. 
And oftentimes the the priest would actually wear a bell on his <laughs> on his ankle so that because it was considered so holy that like that holy place, that holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where where he sprinkles this blood once a year onto the mercy seat. That whole area was considered so holy that they were afraid they're going to die. So because they were afraid they're going to die, they had a bell on them so and a, and a cord so that if they were to die, like the other priest could drag him out, his dead body, like out of the Holy of Holies. This is how holy that they viewed this whole, this whole thing. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Like the um, the level of reverence and understanding that they had of this. And then oftentimes when he came out not dead, which you hope that you didn't drag his dead corpse out of there. So you hope when he comes out not dead, what they would do is throw a big party with all their friends and family um, right after the Day of Atonement that the high priest would because he's like, yay, I didn't die. So that's how, <laughs> that's how crazy and intense this whole thing is. But anyway, that's what he's the picture he's painting. And he says, that priest went in there, verse 7, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So there you go. He's offering uh, this blood for his own sin done in ignorance and other people's sin done done in ignorance. And then verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. And that, that's a real interesting phrase to say. The Holy Spirit is signal showing that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. It's really interesting right there. He's like, this outer tabernacle is a symbol for the present time, which, by the way, Hebrews was probably written around 66 AD. Four years later, that outer tabernacle is destroyed. And it's, then at that point, it's basically like saying, no longer is this the tabernacle, but at, and later on, you have this whole thing talked about. The human body then becomes the tabernacle by which Holy Spirit indwells, and you yourself actually become the Holy of Holies, the place where God resides, which means what has happened to you through faith in Christ and putting all of your trust in him and repenting of your sins is something happens inside of you where Holy Spirit can actually come and take up residence because you are the Holy of Holies now. I mean, that's like crazy to think about that because he says, well, our tabernacle is still standing, verse 9, which is a symbol of the present time, meaning that's the symbol of what was happening then. But then he goes, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. In other words, all the gifts and sacrifices that were offered could not make the worshiper or the high priest or anyone perfect in conscience. Now, that's a really interesting phrase to use. It's a very interesting Greek word, the worshiper perfect in conscience, meaning like what is your con? We think of a conscience as like something that tells you when you're doing something wrong. So, you know, you're doing something wrong and your conscience goes, eh, like, I feel like my conscience is like, um, like telling me, like we think of conscience almost like as a conviction of Holy Spirit or something. We, we, we kind of view our conscience like that, but that's not really what he means. I mean, it's kind of what he means, but he's saying, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. In other words, in order to be perfect in conscience in that word, perfect. And in this way, meaning there's nothing 
in you or that you could possibly point to as hurting your conscience, as telling you something's wrong. You couldn't point to anything inside of you that's telling you that you're wrong because your conscience is now perfect because of Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you can't do anything wrong or think anything wrong or feel anything wrong. But what he is saying is there's something about the blood of Jesus that actually makes your conscience perfect meaning there's nothing inside of you that's wrong. Because when you put faith in Christ, you become perfect. You actually take on his righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness. He imputes righteousness to you, which is why in him, your conscience is perfect. Like that's crazy, right? And he's making the point right here that this old one, like the old covenant and how it was done, you could not do that. And he says, so verse 10, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body um, imposed until a time of reformation. So he's saying this stuff from the old covenant was in effect until the time of change, until the time of the new covenant is basically what he's saying. And verse 11, but when Christ appeared, (laughs) this is like, yes, when Jesus showed up, this is where everything changes. This is where everything is is just upheaval. And all the stuff that we had on earth as a type and a shadow is going to become real. So he says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, I love that. He appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. Um, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. In other words, he didn't enter through the tabernacle, like the outer room or the inner room. He actually entered through the heaven. (laughs) That's basically what he's saying. Through greater, that's what he means when he says not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, meaning Jesus in his sacrifice, in his blood, entered into the very throne room of the living God, not here on earth, but that which is in heaven. That's what he's talking about. He's saying the one here is just a tabernacle made with human hands. Like that, It's basically, he's trying to say this is like a type and a shadow of what's actually occurring in heaven. And Jesus didn't do that. He actually went into the throne room of God in heaven to do this on our behalf. That's what he's saying. Like that's crazy huge. And he says, verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves. So again, he didn't enter into the Holy of Holies through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. And this is like crazy. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So he's saying basically like he entered into the throne room of the living God based on his blood once for all, meaning, well, in other words, he doesn't have to keep on doing it over and over again because he did it one time, once for all sin for all time. And that's why he says, um, um, verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, now you're like, what is that? Well, <laughs> they would take the ashes of a heifer and mix it in the, in this little, uh, container called a laver where you'd mix it with water and, and, and all of that, uh, as a, as a way of also cleansing you. Um, but he says, so if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I mean, that's 
that right there is almost like the whole gospel. It's like, it's like if this stuff, if the blood of goats and bulls and, and the ashes of a burnt heifer into some water somehow sanctified you for the cleansing of the flesh because you were defiled, how much more will the blood of the living God, the God-man Christ Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, not when a tabernacle made with human hands, but actually in heaven, he did this before the throne room of God. If he did that, how much more will that cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, cleanse your conscience. Make your conscience perfect. In other words, make you internally perfect and cleanse you from dead works to serve the living God. So again, it's like once your inside's perfect, your outside will serve the living God. That's what he's saying. And it's so incredibly powerful. Verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. In other words, for the reason that he is actually the sacrifice and he's the priest and he's perfect and he makes your conscience perfect, for this reason, he then becomes the mediator of this new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, of the eternal inheritance. So essentially he's saying he makes a new covenant that is now an eternal inheritance for you. Um, verse 16, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Now, that's an interesting thing. So think, you're kind of like, wait a minute, what, what is that about? So he says, for where a covenant is, there must be of necessity be the death of the one who made it. So you, you think of covenant is the same word as like testament. Um, so that's where some people say like the new covenant or the new testament, right? Because they're the same word but they're slightly used in different ways. So when he says, for where a covenant is, there must be of necessity the death of the one who made it. So think of it in terms of an inheritance. Um, like, in other words, if somebody has a will, like a will and testament, because this could be the word testament. So if somebody has a, a will and testament, you can't um, enact the power of that will until the one who wrote it or, the one, you know, the one for whom it is about dies. So in other words, like if your dad has a will um, you know, and he writes like in his will, this goes to this person, that goes to that person. You can't just start going and taking those things until he's actually dead. So <laughs> I hope that makes sense. That, and that's what he's saying here. He's saying we're a covenant or a testament is because what he's talking about is those who receive the promise of the internal, the eternal inheritance. In other words, only Jesus was actually ever going to be able to receive the promise of the eternal inheritance based on his life and based on his works. Um, but now he's saying for where a covenant is, there must be ne of necessity the death of the one who made it. In other words, since Jesus is the mediator and sort of made this covenant because he said this is the new covenant in my blood. What he's saying is he had to die in order for us to receive the benefits of it. So I hope that makes sense. Like, so he's saying like for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. So again, just like a, you can't get your stuff from your father as will until he actually dies or, you know, your mother, your grandmother, or whoever, you can't get that stuff until they're dead. Neither could you inherit the promises of God through Jesus until Jesus died. Now you inherit the promises. Does that make sense? I hope that does. So verse 17, for a covenant is valid only when men are dead. See, he's sort of just uh, making the point further for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. 
So I hope that makes sense. So see what I mean? Like, again, you can't just take Jesus stuff before he's dead. <laughs> so, but his death actually made it possible for the covenant, for the covenant promises to be imputed to you. So verse 18, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. So in other words, he's just saying, look, this covenant is same as the other covenant. Like even the other covenant we couldn't have entered into without death. And in this case, he's saying that was the death of blood and goats. But he's like, in the new covenant, we had to have Jesus die. That's his point. Verse 21, and in the same way, he sprinkled both, meaning Moses, sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. Verse 22, and according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In other words, how do you, in other what he's saying is you cannot in, in justly offer forgiveness without there being some kind of payment or, you know, offering for what has been, what wrong has been committed. So it's just like we talk about, oftentimes we have the analogy of, of a judge, you know, and, and let's say you have this horrible rapist and he comes in and he, and he just, he, he, well, that's, I don't like that analogy. I don't like using rapists. So let's use a horrible murderer. <laughs> a murderer comes in and he, let's say he killed somebody's wife and the husband is there at the trial and the, the judge looks at him and he goes, Hey, and the guy's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I feel really bad. Like, you know, I'll never do it again. Like, please forgive me. And the judge goes, yeah, okay, I forgive you. Um, you know, I'll go ahead and show you mercy. Just, you're fine. You can walk away. Well, you know, the husband's going to be sitting there like, whoa, they're like, he's devastated. The kids are devastated. And they're like, whoa, how is this okay? And it's not okay because you need to have justice, right? So in other words, there needs to be a shedding of blood or some sort of justice in order for that forgiveness to be, uh, for him to extend forgiveness in some, some sort of just way. So he needs to go to prison or, you know, something. Um, so that's what he's saying right here is that, you know, there's no shedding it without shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness, meaning God can't forgive you without a just sacrifice for your sin. That's the point he's making. Verse 23, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, meaning it was necessary here on earth. He calls basically the sacrifices in the tabernacle and the blood of goats and bulls and all that. He calls the these copies of the heavens. And he says that it was necessary to have that with the copies here on earth. And he goes, but the heavenly things themselves with even better sacrifices. Cause Jesus, remember he went to heaven and did this before the throne room of the living God. Verse 24 for Christ. Here we go. He's going to explain that for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. See, that's what he's talking about. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. So again, he's trying to say the priest went into this physical building that was made with human hands um, as a copy of what was happening in heaven. Jesus actually went into heaven itself and appeared in the presence of God for us. Verse 25, 
nor was it that he would offer himself often. Remember, again, like the priest would, and he even says right here, as the high priest enters a holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Meaning, again, it's the one sacrifice of Jesus that now pays for all sin for all time. He doesn't have to keep doing it over and over again like a high priest would do. That's what he's saying. That's how powerful it is. Verse 27, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So you have this kind of coolness, cool thing in the, in the end. A lot of people use this to be like, okay, we know that like right when you die, you sit before the judgment seat. And again, this is not what he's saying. Like his, in other words, his point here isn't to talk about what happens to you chronologically after you die. His point here is simply saying everyone knows that it's super obvious that when that men die, <laughs> and he said, and after they die, they go to judgment. That's basically what he's saying. He's not. He's saying this is obvious to everybody that everybody dies and everyone's going to be judged. That's what he's saying. And he says he says as much as as that's obvious. He goes so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. In other words, he's saying it's so obvious that people die and get judged. He's saying by that level of obviousness, Christ also since he bore the sins of many will have a second coming. So he's just pro he's proclaiming and predicting the second coming will appear a second time. He goes for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So in other words, he's saying like the second time he, he will appear not to die for sins, but, you know, as the conquering king is essentially what he's saying. So that is um, Hebrews chapter nine. Now, 10 is another one of my absolute favorites. So next episode, we're going to get into Hebrews um, 10, where he's going to talk about another verse where people are like, oh, you can lose your salvation. So we're going to talk about that one in great detail and in great length. And that might be a little longer podcast because there's a lot wrapped up in Hebrews 10 and it's 10, 26 and following that really freaks people out. So we'll talk about that. So anyway, bless you guys. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Unleash Ministries podcast. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by an encounter with the Father's love poured out through His Word. If you would desire to bless this ministry financially, please visit www.unleashedchurch.org and click on the Give link. Thank you.